So welcome to the next episode of the Next Gen Cast. Thank you for listening to us. This episode is with Joe Harrison, who's Chief Exec of Milton Keynes NHS Trust. And before that, Joe is Chief Exec at Bedford Hospital, and he's had nearly 30 years' experience working in acute hospitals. Joe's married to Sam Jones, a paediatric and general nurse by background who also has had an incredibly successful career as a leader in the NHS. And you can listen to Sam's episode in episode two back in May uh, when we first started all of this, which feels like a long time ago now. I asked Sam for a fun fact about Joe before the podcast, and she said that he's known by three names, which are Joe, Ted and Sepp, apparently. Um, uh, perhaps we'll find out more about those a bit later. I wanted to record this episode really because of some of the amazing things that I've heard that he's helped Milton Keynes achieve during his time there. You may have heard about them because they are truly pioneering in some of the work they're doing, especially around tech and around looking after their staff, which Joe's going to tell us about in this episode. So here's Joe Harrison. So Joe, welcome to the Next Gen Cast, and thank you so much for making the time to do this. I mean, I can't imagine how mental your world is at the moment, and it's really kind of you to make the time. Um, I'm glad we got to do it because you're the first acute hospital chief exec that we've had, and yes, that's important because otherwise we might forget that the NHS is not just general practice. I jest, of course, but it's so important for us to learn lessons from secondary care as GPs. So thank you for doing this. No, I'm absolutely delighted to be asked. So thank you, Ish. Um, so Joe, if you don't mind, can we just start with kind of who you are? So I've told people what you do and the titles that you've had, um, but I'd love to just hear, you know, who is who is the real Joe Harrison? And I guess what I'm what I'm trying to ask is what matters to you. The way that I introduce myself is that I'm the father of eleven-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. I am the son of a mum who is now um, quite quite bad at remembering things. She has uh, very bad dementia. Um, and unfortunately, my dad, who was a frequent flyer in the NHS, died three weeks ago. Um, and so I've been looking at the NHS and in particular the, the health side, not so much the care side, but the health side, and trying to work out how we... We just do things that work for all the people that use our services. And when I get home, I have the delights of talking to Sam, my wife, who also runs primary care services. And so I'm, I'm immersed in the NHS. I'm so sorry to hear about your dad, Joe. One of, one of those things, and uh, it's, it obviously comes to us all, but what is really interesting is, is looking at how we in the NHS can manage our patients and our users in a way that's not just convenient and good for us, but actually it's the patient that matters. And how do we how do we sort that out? And COVID's been a fantastic opportunity to, to really shake things up in, in massively challenging times. But I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that in a mm. bit. Um, if you don't mind, can we for now talk about your leadership journey? So I know that you went to Merchant Taylors because I went to school not very far from that. And we had that conversation once. Um, Merchant Taylors had a certain reputation at my school, which we won't go into. But, you know, when you were asked at school, what did you want to be when you grew up? I bet you didn't say chief executive of a hospital. Um, What did you say out of interest? 
Um, I I actually wanted to become a dentist for my sins. I think that's mainly because deep down I'm obviously a bit of a sadist at heart. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to an amazing school and I had no appreciation of that at the time at all. Um, and as a consequence, failed all my A-levels, which was quite special. So you can imagine my parents were delighted at that point and... Um, and my dad did something that it took me a couple of years to work out was the best possible thing that he could do, which was effectively say to me, you're on your own now, uh, you need to leave home and you need to get yourself a job. Um, and so that was that was a, a very challenging time personally. So, so I left and I started work as a medical records clerk at uh, what was the old royal ear hospital around the back of the old uch which all has all been demolished now and that was my first sort of introduction to the nhs and it was basically a summer job that i then continued and found myself a, a year or so later um working out that if i did want to progress in life i probably did need some proper qualifications so i i retook my a-levels and I then went on. I don't, I don't declare this very often, but I did a couple of years of studying uh, the Charles Institute of Management Accountancy uh, before realising that I am in no way cut out to be an accountant. Uh, so at, by that stage, I was working for a, a soon-to-be chief exec at the time, John Pope, and uh, he was the director of finance. But he encouraged me to to think outside of finance and go and do other things. So I went into operational management. And so I spent the last 30 years working in the acute sector and working in very, very different organisations from the big London teaching hospitals to the, to the likes of Central Middlesex and indeed Milton Keynes. And I think I found my home in an organisation like Milton Keynes rather than the big, rather than the big teaching hospitals. I prefer the feel of it. So how did you work your way up to being chief exec? Did you sort of have your sights on it for a while or did it just come up by chance? So, so I think I, I was in a family that was, well, I still am in that family. So my sister was a chief exec, my brother-in-law was a chief exec. Uh, my, you know, one of my best mates was a chief exec. And it was, it was almost a, an expectation. And so I was developing my career and it was the classic sort of you go and be a service manager then a general manager then a director of ops and sort of going through the motions really um, and I got to a certain point and then it was quite a brutal time uh, for chief execs over, over certain sort of periods and and I watched as sort of all of my all of my touch points basically got either taken out or or asked to leave and go and do something else. Um, and when Tuesday lifespans were very, very short and incredibly harsh. And so I decided at that point I didn't want to be a Tuesday. Um, and so I was working I was working at UCLH for Robert Naylor. I then went and had a fantastic time with Claire Panica at the North Middlesex. And and I didn't really want to be a Tuesday. I was enjoying being a number two. Then the trigger for it was a, a friend of mine became a Tuesday. I thought, well, actually, if they can do it, then I probably ought to give it a go. Um, and I was very lucky to, to get the Tuesday's job at Bedford. It was my first job, and that was, that was brilliant. Were you put off by the um, 
sort of football manager mentality of, you know, the doors turn every few years. I don't think that's changed that much. You're probably, you've been at Milton Keynes seven years, haven't you? Probably not that many people have stayed more than a few years. It, it was it was definitely off-putting. And as I say, the, the, the regime at the time was pretty harsh. Um, but what it did do was prepare me for being sacked at some point. And I think once you once you sort of recognise that and establish that, it gives you a sort of freedom and a legitimacy to get on and do the right thing. Because I was watching these different styles and types of chief execs, some I respected, some I didn't. Um, and they all sort of seemed to meet the same fate. So I think it sort of certainly encouraged me just to get on and do what I thought was the right thing in the knowledge that at some point somebody would come along and take you out. Um, and that was quite liberating. So that's the, way I've, that's the way I've taken it. So before you became chief exec, when you look back at all those other roles that you did, where do you think you learnt the most? Um, probably two things. Certainly the person you work for is, is, is without question the most important thing. So I go back to some of the people that I've worked for and you can always find fault with anything. But the reality of on balance is the person that you're working for, somebody that you respect and somebody that you, you've got their back and they've got your back and you're doing the right thing and it fits with your values. If that's the case, absolutely brilliant. If it's not, get out. It doesn't matter how much you think you can change, either yourself or the individual that you're working for. If, if there's that significant disconnect, it doesn't matter what sort of organisation you're working in um, and how brilliant that organisation may or may not be. If that relationship with your, with your line manager isn't, isn't as good as it needs to be, then, and, and I learned that the hard way. And I think the other thing for me is moving organisations is in the NHS, just like moving countries. People say, how can, you, how can you work in the NHS for 30 odd years and do you not get bored? It's like, no, because every time you move organisation, the culture is massively different. The way things are done is massively different. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but that experience of going from an organisation, say like UCLH to, to the North Mid, was, was different worlds. And both of those worlds had brilliant things in them. And that, for me, has been the most interesting part around changing jobs, doing different roles. And I suppose that the final, final thing that comes to mind is, in my career, I did a couple of sideways moves. And they were to go and work for people that I wanted to go and work for. And as a consequence, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it worked out well. So I think a lot of people only really want to move sometimes for career progression. And I would absolutely advocate if you get an opportunity to go and work for somebody that you want to work for, go for it. That's really interesting, actually. So you're sort of saying don't focus so much on the position as the person. As as you were talking there, I was thinking back of things that I've enjoyed doing and it's always come down to the person I've been working for. And I suppose now that you're top of the tree, is that the same for, you don't have a line manager to work for, but does that still translate to the people that you've appointed around you? It's the team. Here at MK over the last seven, seven and a half years, the team has almost changed 100%. And 
how do you maintain that that energy, that consistency, that fun, um, such that the team dynamic works? You, you don't want a whole bunch of Joes in that team. You want variety. You want all sorts of different skills, and having that makes it fun. And you want people you want people not to leave because they want to. You want them to leave because they're going on to do something else that's brilliant and you want to be able to attract great people in. You don't like to leave somewhere where you've got a where you've got a really good team, you're working in a really good team. And that's what that's what we've got here. And it it, it matters. It really matters. So let's come on to your time at Milton Keynes pre corona. What have been some of the highlights and maybe even more importantly, some of the lowlights? And I'm asking that because I think we don't talk about that very much. We, I wouldn't hear much about what's hard, but also that's probably where a lot of your learning has come from. So what's been hard and what's been fun? Yeah, let's, let's start with the lows because everybody likes to focus on the, on the highlights. Um, I, I think there are a couple of lows for me. One is that we still don't get it right enough there's still so much that we can do here and i'm in charge of the organization and have been for a long period of time now and there are still things that aren't working as well as they could do despite everybody's best efforts focusing on that is both a a sort of downbeat issue as well as right we've got to we've got to fix this a couple of the other lows for me is um the the pace of change is just not as good as it could be and how do we ensure that we've got everybody in the organization pulling in the right direction with a voice that matters and i don't care whether you're the cleaner the porter the 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 band five nurse or or a consultant how do we get your voice heard because you're guaranteed to have a brilliant idea and, and we haven't done that across the board. And as a consequence, we haven't got an organisation that is as good as it possibly could be. And that manifests itself in things going wrong for our patients, in things not working out in the way they should for the team here and individual members of the team here. And so those are the things that are the, are the low lights where we just haven't got it right. And I know we've got the capability, I know we've got the capacity, and yet we still haven't got it right. So that's the bit that I think is is both the motivator and the sort of disappointment. On a personal level, just keeping on the theme of the hard bits, what have been the times when you've gone home and maybe struggled to get to sleep or you just put your head in your hands and thought, this is too hard? Has that ever happened to you? Don't say daily. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do in my office. <laughs> um, also, some of the people listening to this might think that it's about, you know, I worry about things like money. I don't. I really don't. And I'm probably not allowed to say that as a chief set, but I don't. In the nicest possible way, I'm only interested in money as, a, as something that stops us from doing what we want to do rather than worrying about going to sleep at night. So it's definitely not that. I think the the things that I struggle with personally are some of the bureaucratic issues that impact on our ability to deliver. Either me personally 
or the organisations. So whether that's a whether that's a national edict that comes down and you read it and you think, really, really, surely there's got to be a better way than that, or whether it's a, a change in the architecture of the NHS, and and it's it's one of those, oh, come on, you know we we're wasting so much money and we're spending on stuff that just doesn't matter. And I, I mean, I've just taken a, a, a role with NHSX a couple of days a week, um, working with, with Matthew Gould, and, and getting that connection between what really matters, not just at the hospital level in primary care and social care, versus the conversations that go, go on in the political world. That's, that's why I'm interested in, in, in working with Matthew, because I don't think very often those two connect in a way that is helpful and positive. So that's the stuff that tends to keep me awake at night. It's not stuff in my organisation. It's, it's stuff that impacts on my organisation over which I don't have any real control. And that's, that's been a real issue over the last few months. Why can't you just give us the answer? Because I'm doing what I'm told. So some of that, some of that does keep me awake. I bet lots of people are nodding away there, the frustration that's born out of things that happen to you and that aren't in your control. Um, so thank you for your honesty. Um, what about the highlights? What have been the things that you're most proud of as chief exec? Uh, so I, I think there are three things, um, and, and people often talk in threes, but on this occasion, I, I think it's the right thing. Um, we now have, on balance really good clinical care being delivered and I didn't used to bring my family to this hospital when I first became GZ because the care wasn't good enough 24-7 across the key specialties. I, I have now had, in the last couple of years, I've had every member of the family treated here, including myself, and, and it's not our nearest local hospital. And, and again, people listening to this might say, well, you would do that because you're the chief exec and they'll look after you. Um, there is, there is a little bit of that, but actually that doesn't really matter at three o'clock in the morning when you've got a, a healthcare support worker and a band five looking after you as the chief exec and you've had, and you've got pneumonia and they're doing your OBS. Uh, they don't care who you are. That they're quite rightly doing their job and they're doing it really well. And that's, that's what I want. And so that the routine clinical care now in MK, I, I look at it now compared to where we were seven or eight years ago. And we were on the naughty step for everybody. The trainees didn't like us across the board. Um, all the regulators didn't like us. And actually people now come to our hospital knowing that we are doing some exciting stuff. We are getting things right and we're attracting people to come and work here which is which is brilliant so it's that from the sustainable thing is really important it's not just throwing money in the short term i think the other the other two bits are inextricably linked which is around the the workforce and tech and and i i do have a passion interest call it what you like i can't i can barely use a mobile phone so this isn't coming from somebody who 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 gets technology I don't, I'm not interested in the nicest possible way in how things work. I'm absolutely interested in, by the time I leave this hospital, 
making sure that every patient has got their mobile their their medical record on their mobile phone if they want it i'm absolutely clear that we should be communicating with our patients in a modern safe efficient way so that we can spend our money on more exciting things than paper and stamps and the ability to share that clinical data is critical and and you then wrap that up into um, having a workforce that knows that it's genuinely cared about. I mean, why are we not investing more and more and more in our workforce in order that we can deliver brilliant care? The likes of Google and Apple and so on don't spend all this money on providing soft play and breakout areas and drinks and all the rest of it because they've got nothing else to spend it on although we might think that um, they do it because they know it attracts and retains the best people so why on earth aren't we doing it and and you know a smile and a, and a and a sprinkling of magic fairy dust from somebody important might have worked 10 15 years ago but actually people are making really big choices now about where they spend their time and what they do with it and you know charging people to come to work to park their car is ridiculous not giving them a drink when they're here ridiculous come on nhs sort it out because otherwise people like yourselves nish will go and go somewhere where you're truly valued and can do what you want to do and that, so the tech the tech agenda enabling people to do what they want to do easily and looking after them. I'm a dinosaur. You aren't going to get people like me wanting to work five days a week for 30 odd years in the NHS over the next 10, 20, 30 years. People are looking for portfolio careers. They're looking for flexible working. They're looking for ways of, of enjoying life whilst working. And we've got to facilitate that we've got to make it happen it's not a failure if you're part-time it means you've made a life choice and we need to be able to enable you to get promotion and develop and become amazing as well as do other things and i think the nhs has been massively slow on that agenda and we've got to do that we've got to do it. it's the right thing to do so refreshing to hear you say that joe someone that's imminently returning to work very part-time and already feeling a bit second rate about it it's so nice to hear you say that why isn't everyone saying the same thing i mean if you were to say to other trusts this is what we're doing they might say well it costs too much we can't afford it what would you say to them you spend more on recruiting than you do on the money you get from your car parking i'm sorry it's as simple as that so if you see what's coming down the track now, we, I, I, one of the things that I think we have, yes, we've done, we've done okay on in terms of the, the staff welfare agenda in Milton Keynes. The next big thing for us is the, the impact on the family unit of COVID. So nobody comes to work without baggage. And if you are a, if you're a member of staff whose partner has just been um, made redundant or has been furloughed and isn't bringing in an income that was expected, then how are we as an employer going to try and do everything that we can to support that family unit? 
you know, the, the, the free meals is an interesting one. So, so we, what we want to do here is provide a, an affordable subsidized meal for staff. If you come into our canteen at the moment or restaurant, you can get a salad for three pounds. It's a nice salad. I had one today. Um, and a portion of chips is one pound twenty. And if you haven't got the cash, you'll buy the portion of chips. And we are, by the very nature of how we are currently structured, we're not supporting the health and well-being of our staff in all of the ways that we need to. And, and so that sort of agenda for us is, is, is absolutely where we've got to go next. Obviously, my dad died three weeks ago. I, I'm coming into work with baggage. And how do we look after everybody in a way that we can then continue to make the demands on those individuals that we do through situations like COVID? There's got to be some give and take on there. So nice because it feels like you're talking about your staff as people and not just initials on a rotor. And that is so rare. And yet you see other sectors doing it pretty well, actually. Yes. And the NHS is a people business. And yet I think we do that appallingly. I think we've got the H in HR completely wrong in the NHS in most places. Put it this way, if we don't get it right, there are... There are so many choices for individuals to make now. And whilst I might think Milton Keynes is the centre of the universe, if, if you're a high-flying consultant and you get offered a job between Oxford and Milton Keynes, what are we doing in MK to make sure that we get excellence here as well as in Oxford? Because, because we don't have that name. And what we're absolutely sure we will do is make it as hard as possible for somebody to not come and work here turn it on its head and make it really hard for them to not to come. Can we go back to the tech for a bit? So for people that don't know, maybe you could just briefly touch on what you've done. But how have you got there? That's the other thing, because I bet you've made more change in tech in the last five years there than has been in the last 50. How have you, how have you managed that? The technology journey, whatever we want to call it, um, started with coming into the organization seven years ago and and there being no wi-fi now when you talk about milton Keynes, people see it as a young um city that's technology it's the place of the remote car and the little robots along the sidewalks or whatever <laughs> delivering things and there was no wi-fi at all so you came to work and you used to just drop your device in the drawer because no phone signal no wi-fi no nothing um and that's just ridiculous. So we spent an awful lot of money, a million pounds that year, in putting in a, a decent Wi-Fi, in the knowledge that everything hangs off that in the future. And it's no good going down the electronic patient record and you know the, all these other fancy things that happen if you haven't got Wi-Fi everywhere in your organisation. So the challenge, the challenge to the IT team was to be able to walk from the top of the multi-storey car park on one side of the site to my office on the other side of the site, and bear in mind it's a 65-acre site, um, without me losing phone connection. And this wasn't about, oh, God, the chief exec wants something, we have to give it to him. It's about being able to show that actually 
this works, and therefore we can build on that. So that was the, yeah, that, that sort of technology 101. If you haven't got Wi-Fi, just give up and go home. Um, forget all the fancy stuff. And then after that, there's been two parallel agendas. One is the, one is the sort of clinical tech agenda. And the second is the patient-led agenda. And so the clinical tech agenda was, yes, of course, we want an electronic patient record. That's, that's fine. We put in the, we put it in without a business case to save a load of money, which is, which is rare. So most electronic patient records, somebody, one of the big four firms comes along and says it'll save a nurse 15 seconds for every time the OBS are taken because they don't have to write it into the notes and um, it'll transfer automatically. And if you want to add all that up, that's half a million pounds a year of savings. Well, it's not. It's actually 15 seconds more for that nurse either to take a breath or to actually speak to the patient whilst they're doing something. And there's no financial savings at all. So we did that with a view that we would get to a place whereby we genuinely took paper out of the organisation. And we're now in a place whereby the consultant on the ward round can dictate live into the medical record of the patient. So there's no paper involved. There's no dictating machine. It is literally on the phone, on the iPad, and it goes straight into the medical record. Brilliant. Alongside that, um, I said that I said that I was a user of the NHS. Uh, my children go up to Guys and Tommy's and um, Great Ormond Street every three months. Um, there's nothing worse than getting a letter the week before an outpatient appointment for your child and having a very busy um, partner who is more important than you, and then recognising that you have to spend a day of your life phoning that hospital and, and changing the appointment. And so the whole agenda about empowering the patient to actually run their own sort of uh, process stuff, changing appointments, making appointments, getting everything, all their letters on the phone the second that they agree an appointment time, all of that now, is in place and all of the technology to enable the patient to see everything in their medical records is available. That's incredible, Joe. It sounds it sounds like you're talking about healthcare in the future. Um, it's here. It's all here. I can't imagine what a bumpy journey that you've been on to get to get there. But what's the do you have an end point? Is it just gonna evolve slowly over the next few years or do you have the vision of what you want it to all look like at the end. So the thing that I didn't mention in all of that is is the sort of population health management bit, which which has become the sort of buzz language of, of, of you know technology now. And we've got to have population health management, and, and we've got to stratify our patients, and we've got to find the the five percent that use the sixty percent, and so on. And and ultimately, we do want to get to that place, and actually use. The information, the clinical information that we've got in a way that allows us to see what's coming rather than just react to what we get. So I should be able to tell you now where the, in all likelihood, the next set of fractured neck of femurs are going to come from in Milton Keynes, because that data is there. We just don't use it. In the same way, I can tell you to roughly, you know, within 10 attendances, how many people are going to 
come through the door of ED tomorrow, we should be doing that condition specific. We should be doing that location specific in a way that enables us to get to the source of the, the health issues that we've got. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And the other thing that I really, really want to get into, which is, and I could, it's interesting. I'm smiling because it's not the sort of thing the acute trust duties actually necessarily say, but how do you, how do you become a health service? in that you're actually genuinely interested in the health of the population, not just fixing them when they're broken. And you as a primary care clinician will absolutely get that because your training is absolutely set up to ensure that you make the most of every encounter to educate and nudge and try and get people to change their behaviours for the, for the best. Um, I'm, I'm interested in doing that at the macro level with the council to say, we know that estate has got poor housing, poor education, poor crime, violence, safeguarding. What do we as a place need to do to keep pulling levers until we take that geography out of its current demands on everything? And as a consequence, the, the population's health is poor. And that for me is the panacea. Whether, whether we get there or not, I don't know, but that's, that's what I would love to do. Joe, I've never heard a hospital chief exec talk in those terms. I think maybe you're wasted in the acute sector and you should join primary care. The nice thing about COVID, because I'm, I'm going to focus on the positives of, uh, of COVID for a second. They uh, <laughs> recognise the damage that it's done, of course. Um, so COVID took away a lot of the financial levers that were driving behaviours. It took away a lot of the um, risk issues that were driving behaviours. And it enabled, in, in particular, the acute sector to think very differently very quickly. I mean, primary care went digital overnight. Um, the acute sector, uh, some significant way behind, constrained by the financial model, constrained by the risk model of dragging everybody into a hospital. Um, I think that hopefully will create an environment where people understand that we, we were able to, and yes, there will always be issues at the margin, but we were able to free up 30,000 acute beds in a relatively short space of time. That is massive. And what does that tell you about how we were managing the acute sector on a routine basis? Before anybody thinks it, it wasn't just because we cancelled all elective patients. It was because we started to get a number of the longer stay patients, a number of uh, individuals who didn't need to be in the acute setting into the right place in the system. And, and so why wouldn't we continue to try and do that? And that for me is, that for me gives you then the capacity and the headroom to, to work out how you want to run healthcare services in a different way. And that's really interesting to hear about maybe some of the positive legacy that COVID might actually leave at Milton Keynes. We haven't talked much about COVID, Joe, but um, maybe you could share some reflections on what the last few months have been like for you as a as an acute trust chief exec. So we were we were chosen, for want of a better term, to take the second group of um, people coming back from Wuhan, the, the final flight from Wuhan. So oh, we were given 48 hours notice 
to set up the isolation facility in, in Kent's Hill and Milton Keynes with 100, 120 people. And so before COVID really hit the radar of most organizations, we were running a 24-7 isolation hotel for two weeks. And, and that nearly broke us. It was really interesting in terms of the, the operational management and the pressures that it put on all sorts of different groups of staff was huge. And we were, and we learned phenomenal amounts very, very rapidly. And at the end of that two weeks, two and a half weeks, we came back into the organization just as everybody was gearing up for COVID at the sort of end of February, beginning of March time. And, and it allowed us as an exec team and as an organization to, to really think about the stuff that we had to do. And it wasn't just about what happens if our critical care gets full. It was what happens if our critical care gets full and what happens if our second critical care gets full. And then what happens if we need to use all of our oxygen supplies to 85, 90, 95%. And we were asking all of those questions and bought ourselves a bit of time. So, so it was, it was hard work. And what's been really nice is that a lot of people in the organization have said how proud they've been to work in an organization that coped well with what was going on. Um, yes. We tried things and got a few things wrong, no question. Um, but for the most part, I think the, the, the planning that we did and the way that the individual clinical teams and individuals reacted was outstanding. I bet the investment that you put into looking after your staff, I bet that has paid off in some respects because you are drawing on the end of their reserves in recent months, but you've spent so much time investing in them and i i bet that's really paid off it's that is it that is a great conversation to have on a on another day because if you're already doing all this stuff for your team then actually it's almost like a given and it's expected so we had really good conversations about okay what next what are we going to do now what are we going to do now because actually we need to be able to keep that momentum of health and well-being and investing in our people in a way that other organizations could offer free car parking and it was like wow they've got free car parking we've done that a couple of years ago so that's not going to work um so it was really pushing us to to keep going and do something different and what's brilliant is that we've got we've got another massive agenda coming down the track now which i am hugely hugely excited about um and that is how do we how do we make our organization and the team in our organization green how do we how do we invest in things like solar technology and how do we then enable our staff to to think in a different way at a time when you ask our youngest generation their number one issue in the last three surveys that I've seen post-COVID, their number one issue is the planet. It's not anything else. And here we are as an NHS, not yet taking seriously how we look after our planet. And what you know, That's come out of the conversations around COVID. Again, really interesting. 
I'm so conscious of your time, Joe. I'm sure you've got lots of things to be doing. But just the last, the last few questions, if that's okay. Personally, you're you're married to Sam, who you know I'm a big fan of, and has done a podcast for us. You've got eleven year old twins. How are you finding now, and how have you found juggling everything you've been doing with life at home? It's family first, absolutely family first. There's never any question about that. So I I still have one or two members of of the team who will say, "I'm I'm really sorry, little Johnny is sick today. Can I take?" some time off so the the answer is yes because it's family first and again if you respect the individual and what their needs and wants and and requirements are then i've no doubt you get it back in space as an employer and and say we are one of us is always at home in the morning and always at home in the evening that's that's a non-negotiable they're only young (laughs) <laughs> for a very short period of time. They're 11 now. They won't be speaking to me in a year's time. <laughs> so well, I'm not going to miss that. Yeah, I work will, it, Work is all-consuming if you allow it to be all-consuming. Mm, that's absolutely true. And Joe, just the final three questions that we're asking everyone who comes on the podcast, and I promise I'll let you go and do important things like lead a hospital. The first is, can you recommend a book or a leadership resource that's, that you found helpful? The people or the area that I rely on a lot is the King's Fund, actually. Just in terms of covering a huge amount of ground, I, I'm not very good at listening to inspirational um, individuals and and changing my life on the back of them. Um, I love picking different p- things out of different people. Um, so I think that, for me, would be... The King's Fund is, if you like, my... My go-to source of, I need a sensible voice on this. And the second question is, can you tell us about a leader that you have um, admired, who's been a bit of a role model for you, and why? I suppose the one, the standout one for me, who I've had the absolute pleasure of, of working with, is um, Sir Anthony Selden, uh, who's, the, who's uh, just left being Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham. And there's something about there's something about great leaders. They're a bit like great sportsmen. They always seem to have time. They are, it's like, you know, a great footballer has more time on the ball than everybody else. A great cricketer has more time to play the shot. A great leader always seems to have time for you. And Sir Anthony is no exception on that. And he is wise and humble and just yeah I, I think he is a, an outstanding individual thank you and I, I i do remember he's done a really good desert island disc actually which we'll link to in the show notes so joe the final question is your top bits of advice for new leaders everybody is busy and it is amazing the impact that you have if you are able to both be present and smile and that doesn't mean to the important in inverted commas people in the world it means to saying hello to the cleaner who has just got back from their long weekend it's remembering that the porter who looked after your dad and who's asked over the last couple of years how he is 
actually it's nice to say to him, unfortunately, dad passed away and have a chat with him about it. And it comes back to my comment about Sir Anthony Selden. I think really great leaders have time and are present. And so that for me is a, is a huge thing, not just when somebody important is in the room, but when anybody's in the room. I suppose the other thing linked into that is the impact of who you are as a leader. And I always say, if I walk past somebody in the corridor and I don't smile and say hello because I'm doing something, I just think I'm doing something. I can still remember the chief exec walking past me in the corridor, not saying hello and thinking, oh God, what have I done? And I don't know whether I've done anything or not, but almost certainly they were just busy doing something. But the impact of that sort of thing is really, really important. And I just think that people are so busy being busy that we forget the impact that we have on, on others. That's so true, isn't it? We, we judge people by their actions, not by their intent, but it yeah. matters. Joe, thank you. Um, I really was just reflecting there on what you said about Anthony Selden and having time for people and how really good leaders always have time. Um, and somehow you've managed to make time to do this and to tell your story. Your values about looking after staff and your people particularly really shone through for me. And I'm, I'm going to take that away. So thank you so much. I hope so, because there's always lots to do in Milton Keynes. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, good. The, whole, the whole thing was a great recruitment ad. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So that was Joe Harrison, Chief Exec of Milson Keynes, and I really enjoyed that conversation and what a humble and thoughtful leader he is. So that's us done for another podcast. Don't forget, as ever, to sign up to the Next Gen monthly bulletin if you want to hear about what else Next Gen are up to and also watch out for some of our virtual programmes, which are going to be restarting very soon, probably coming to an area near you if you'd like to join in. We'd love to have you be part of Next Gen. Have a good few weeks and see you next time.